I'm excited. I love what we get to talk about today. And I'm going to just meander for a moment before we get to the lesson per se and give people a chance to filter in and have a seat. Um, But I'm excited about it. What this summer series is about for me is trying to um, move the idea of, of our faith from being something that's just, yeah, that's the way people used to think and that's what people used to say, but it doesn't really fit the modern mind. It doesn't fit where we are in the world today and what we know. And I, I don't think that's right. In fact, I, I know that's not right. God's message and who God is does not change, does not become out of date. All it is is a question of how we take today and use today's knowledge and today's thinking manners to apply them to God's message. And it gives us a chance to see it perhaps from a different light. My goal in this summer series, before we get back into the New Testament text come fall, my goal is to move us to understand and realize that God and His message is relevant in today's mindset. And so that's what we're trying to do. To do that, we've sort of jumped from a 1952 book by J.B. Phillips entitled, Your God is Too Small. Where J.D. Phillips was doing that for the 1952 mentality. But times have changed so aggressively since 1952. Knowledge has has fast forwarded at at a blinding rate since 1952. That I'm convinced it does us service to redo the same approach. But to make it invigorated for today. So with that meandering prologue, let's begin class. Today, your God is still too small, biolinguistics and the communicating God. Now, I just have to take a poll. Today is a very interactive class, which does not mean that it's Q&A because you can't really, we can't do that in a class this large. But I am going to ask for participation from you. Now, nothing I'm asking should shame you. Nothing I'm asking should embarrass you. So just participate at will, please. First question for the day. Do you think you have a clue what I'm talking about when I say biolinguistics and the communicating God? Of course, if you've already read the lesson because you got here early and you did your speed Evelyn Wood thing, then you get to hold up your hand. But... Maybe you didn't. Does anybody have a clue what I'm talking about? If you do, raise your hand. Or if you think you might. Okay, a number of you do. But I'd say the majority don't. That's going to make this fun. Here is my comment for the overall thrust of the class. If we are not hearing from God, it is not God's fault. Let me repeat that. If we, and I'll personalize it, if you and I are not hearing from God, don't blame him. It's not his fault. And I hope to prove that to you, for lack of a better word, today. 
It's the lawyer in me. I was feeling very legal when I wrote this lesson. I think that's why I started with a court reporter and a stenographer. Court reporters sit there with these magical little machines and can take down hundreds of words per minute. And the machines hook into a computer and the words just appear on this computer screen. It's amazing. And I asked a court reporter one time to explain to me how her little machine worked. And it's all these little keys. But the keys are not like the keyboard on a computer. She's not typing words. She's not typing letters. In fact, her keyboard doesn't have a C, I, J, M, N, Q, V, X, or Y. It's missing those letters. She couldn't type letters if she wanted to. How would she ever type? She doesn't have any of those letters. If you want to know how to spell that, it's C-I-J-M-N-Q-V-X-Y. Now, she can't type that, or he can't type that. There are men who are court reporters. Do you know what they're typing? This is the keyboard and what it looks like. They're actually typing syllables. And they do it by hitting like three letters at a time, or four letters at a time. There are 40 basic sounds, syllable sounds, in the English language. And they learn those 40 basic sounds. And there are key combinations that they hit to put together the 40 sounds. So when you and I are speaking English, we've got about 40 sounds we're using over and over. That's true whether you're from Maryland or whether you're from Texas. You've got about 40 sounds. If you're from Boston, you only have 39 because they don't have an R. <laughs> Take the car to the park instead of a taxi. Okay, this is phonology. It's one of four branches of study in the area of study called linguistics. Phonology is the part that is the study of the sounds. Ology, from the Greek logos, means the study of or thinking about. Phonos, from the Greek for sound. We get a phonograph record from it. It's the sound. So phonology is the study of speaking sounds. And science and scientists and philosophers have studied this uh, uh, to a great degree. It's a really hot area of study right now. Probably the leading area in the United States to study this is MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Because this is considered a cutting-edge science uh, uh, philosophy type uh, area of study. Speaking sounds. Now, here it is. You ready? I told you there are 40 basic syllables in the English language. If you were to speak, and I would just like you to do this with me, say, hello, Mark. Aha! You just used about 40 different muscles. 40 different muscles. All right, you ready to be shocked with this? When you speak, every second you speak... In general, you are activating those 40 muscles. You'll activate them and deactivate them in different stages as you're using them. As you're moving your tongue in all these different ways. As you're using your larynx. As you're using your diaphragm. As you're using your lungs and your chest. As you're using your throat. As you're contorting your face and your nasal cavities. You are activating per second... 225 times those 40 muscles. 
Not each one 225 times. A total of 225, more or less, muscle activations every second you speak. And the most stunning part of that to me is we do it unconsciously. When I asked you, I said, say hello, Mark. You didn't think, okay, I've got 225 muscle contractions I'm going to need to do and and releases. Here we go. I start with number one. I move my mouth and my lips. Hey, hey. Open up. Hello, Mark. No, you just did it. You just unconsciously moved everything you needed to move to 225 muscle activations per second. Now, give you a little experiment here. If you want to go fishing, you say, I fish. Say, I fish. All right, now, I want you to pretend you did it yesterday probably true for Hudgens and a few of you, but for the rest of you, you'll have to pretend. So let's put it in the past tense. Say, I fished. Interesting. Interesting. Now let's do the same thing here with a ladder. Say what I have written out there. Now make it past tense. Interesting. Do you know what you did just now? When you put fish in the past tense, you changed the D sound to a T. You said, I fished. F-I-S-H-T. I fished. But when you put climb in the past tense, you kept that D as a D. I climbed. T-da. Ta-da. That's what you did. Now, why did you do that? What were you thinking? You weren't. Your brain did that automatically. And I dare say if I asked you, when do you change the sound of a D in the past tense to a T? Some of you might be able to figure it out. But most of you will not know. It is a rule of English pronunciation, phonology, a rule of speaking that you know subconsciously and you don't even know what the rule is, but you follow it. There was an old uh, fellow, in fact, he was Darwin's chief mouthpiece for evolution. Back in the 1800s, a British biologist named Thomas Huxley Huxley said the following in 1863. That puts it in the middle of our civil war. He's over in England. This is what he said. The possession of speech, speaking, is the grand distinctive character of man. It is what sets man apart from any other creature. The way and ability we have to speak. Now, he didn't know the details of it the way we do. But it wasn't him who came up with it originally. Last week we talked about Jesus being the logos. And we talked about logos. That Greek word logos. How do we translate the word logos? Do you remember? Word. But look at logos for a minute. 
Here's your challenge on this one. Look at logos, the English form of it. Can you think of any English words that come from that? Logic, very good. What about all those ologies? Also comes from it. Theology, thinking about God. Phonology, thinking about sounds. Biology, thinking about bios or life. All of those ologies mean thinking about because they come from that same Greek word logos. Now, why does the same word that we translate word, why were the Greeks using that word for logic and rationality and for thinking about things? Why? Because we think in words. When your brain is turned on, and I can remember as a kid just thinking, this is bizarre. I want to try and think without using words. Well, you can't. And you can envision things. But what you're envisioning, you say, what am I envisioning? Oh, that's a, an auditorium full of people. I mean, I'm using words. We think in words. There's a Nobel laureate who's now dead, Salvador Luria, who said human language is the special faculty. He was making a presentation to the American Association of, of Academic Scientists. Human language is the special faculty through which all conscious human activity is filtered. If you are thinking consciously, you are thinking through language. That's the filter. I'm not saying you don't use pictures. You might be moving furniture about in a house, and you might be moving it over there and thinking, or you might be thinking, what would the sofa look like against that wall? But when you're thinking it and in trying to envision it, your thought is... I'm not sure that looks good. You're still using words. We are a bio... Look, look, let's put this into a timeline. There has been a cognitive, that's thinking, a thinking revolution in language studies since the 1950s. Since the 1950s to today, scientists have been perplexed. Why is it we think this way? Why do words permeate everything we do? How can we do this speaking stuff without even thinking about it? Why is it that a three-year-old kid cannot add two plus two, but he can add in sentences, in this sense? I want that, and that, and that, and that. And that. His brain is able to add language-wise even before he's able to compute mathematically. Something's going on here. And the first uh, fellow to really write about it a lot was B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner was a famous behaviorist, and he said the reason we have acquired this language, the reason you do what you do and I do what I do, and the reason you can say, hello, Mark, 225 muscle activations per second without even thinking about it is because it's learned behavior. Once you were a kid, you, or even before you were born, you heard your mama's heartbeat and your mama's voice, and it started making neural pathways, and you just learned this behavior. The problem is... He got ripped to shreds by a fellow from MIT named Noam Chomsky who destroyed B.F. Skinner's idea. Noam said, no, it can't be that, that, you're just, that, 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 that you've just learned this behavior by being around others. Let me give you an example. Did you know before Saddam Hussein's government was toppled, 
just months before his government was toppled, he made a secret trip to the United States to try to see George Bush, the president. But he got stopped at the gates of the White House and they would not let him in. So instead, he went down to Disney World in Florida on his way back to Iraq. Okay, now that's not true. I made that up. But I want to tell you something. I just gave you a sentence that I'm willing to wager you've never heard in your entire life. And you understood it. And that's not because behavior has taught you how to understand... It just is. So Chomsky came out and Chomsky said that language is native to humans. And he talked about a language acquisition device, which I think he's retreated from a little bit or at least redefined. But a language acquisition device that's in your brain. It perplexes the evolutionists today is they try to figure out how has this ability evolved in a human. We are hardwired for language. It's in our very fiber of our brains. And they can't figure out how it all developed. It's just there. Our brains work that way. We think that way. We are people of language and people of words. And it's a cutting edge of philosophy right now. The, the, the philosophers and the linguistics the linguists don't even understand all of the rules that exist in our brain. Our son's PhD at Oxford is trying to establish and help us understand a new rule for how we use language that we don't even know. Because there's countless of them out there. They can't program a computer to sit and have a conversation with us like this. I mean, Siri does okay. But they can't program a computer to truly have a conversation with us because they don't know all the rules of language to plug them into the computer. Our brains, the brain of a three-year-old functions with language better than a computer. It's an amazing thing. So what does this have to do with class? Well, I think that question is this. Why is language so important? Oh, but yes, we think in language. That's one reason. But here's a bigger reason to me. We as people want to be understood and we want other people to understand us. And you may not want everybody to understand you and you may not want to understand everybody. But there are people in your life, you want to understand them and you want them to understand you. You want a relationship. You want to connect. You want to be part of them. And that we do, my friends, through language. More than any other way, we understand people and they understand us through words. It may not even be the words being spoken. It may be something someone's doing, but it registers in our brain in words. Oh, wasn't that nice of her? Wasn't that nice of him? Boy, now that's someone I'd like to know. Very, very, very impressive. That's what we do. So now you've done your linguistics 101. Let's transition it. If we were in a speech communication class, what would they tell us? Pastor Fleming used some of this in a sermon a few weeks ago. Had some wonderful comments on it when he read it in my lesson yesterday. And I thank him for the the help there. The basic communication model. 
this, I mean, it's, there's fusses and fights. This is just 101. This is the basics. Let's get some terminology down because I want you to think in these terms as we talk about God. First, we have a sender. This is someone who's going to send a message. See, they're going to communicate with a receiver. In this format, I'm the sender and you're the receiver. Now, the sender's going to send a message. There's something the sender wants to convey to you, the receiver, if I'm the sender. I've got something circulating in these gray cells that I would like to get into your gray cells. That's my goal. So if I want to get it into your gray cells, I've got to decide how am I going to do that? I can't just do the Vulcan mind meld. We'll just go one at a time. We're not going to do it that way. So I got to get it to you somehow. How am I going to get what's in my gray cells into yours? You've graciously given me an hour of your time this morning. Because you either are here because you know someone and you kind of need to be here, or you might be interested in knowing what's in my gray cells that I want to share today. So I got to do it. Now, how am I going to do it? Well, first thing I got to do is take that and do what the, 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 the communication wonks call encode it. I've got to put it into words. I've got to put it into whatever message it's going to be. I've got to formulate that message in a way that enables me to deliver it to you. Now, once I deliver it, I can deliver it by saying it. I can deliver it by showing it. I can deliver it by letting you read it. That's called the medium how am, what, not, that's not a medium like uh, Madame Cleo. Uh, but it's the same idea. That's why she's called a medium. She's just taking something <laughs> that's in her brain, trying to convince you it's from the, the dead. And she's the vessel. Okay, so the, the medium is the vessel. How do I take what's in my brain put it into whatever form I want, and then that form gets sent out to the receiver. And when it's sent out to you, you've got to decode it. You've got to sit there and say, and you don't have to do it consciously, but sometimes it is conscious. Okay, what's he talking about? Okay, I've heard those words. I'm looking at that visual, and it's trying to filter so that it goes up into your brain, and you get the message. Did you get the message? That's the message. Then you give me feedback while this is going on. I can see who's asleep. I can see who's paying attention. I can see who's wondering, what does this have to do with the Bible? I can see who's saying, this is what I learned in college. Now in the process of this, there's oftentimes interference. This is the person next to you who's smacking their gum. This is the person, this is the fact you didn't get any sleep last night, or if you're one of my daughters, you're on pain medicine and you're sleeping through everything anyway. This is the fact that maybe your hearing is not tuned in to the frequencies I speak at, in. 
Maybe the interference is you've got some really tough stuff going on in your life right now and you're just having trouble paying attention. Whatever it is, there's interference. That's a basic communication model. Now, here's the thing. I want to take that basic communication model and I want to talk about how God is the sender of communication messages to us. Now, we're going to take everything we've learned so far and turn it into a Bible study. So the issue is this. If we use what science has taught us about how we communicate, how can that help us understand? Because we understand a lot more. As for all we're missing, we still understand a lot more about language than we did 50 years ago. We understand a lot more about communication than we did 50 years ago. We're able to break things down in ways that help us understand what is going on when we do what we're doing. So God, I would suggest to you, has a message he would like to send to you. Now, before I get into this, I think there's a question that should be asked. Is it fair to assume or to think that God would choose to communicate to humanity? Maybe you're sitting out there or maybe you're watching this on the internet and you're thinking, okay, well, fine, God, I know where you're going. God communicates through the Bible and through his Holy Spirit and I see all of that coming. But my question is, I don't think that there's a God who would be communicating like that. I just don't think he does. Well, this is, there are two choices you got here. There are three, but I think you only get two. One choice is to say there is no God. In this bizarre universe that's so finely tuned for humanity, in this ability that you have that's native within you to communicate, all just happened and came from absolutely nothing. Lawrence Krauss's book, notwithstanding, I don't think that's possible and likely. So... One choice is there's just no God. The other choice is is there's a God, but he may be too busy. Or he may not care. Or he may not have enough desire. Or listen to seven people, seven billion people, communicate to seven billion people. (laughs) Or we could say God's communicating. Those are our choices. I want to deal with the middle choice today. Is, is it possible that there is a God who is all-powerful, who knows every quark and every star, who has spread the heavens out and can keep up with every molecule and everything we've talked about in this class so far? Is it possible that he is there and he's so powerful, he just doesn't care? He doesn't have the desire to communicate. I just think that's outrageous. I don't see how someone can fairly think that. To me, that's just not reasonable. I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm saying if you don't have an agenda and you're just weighing what's more likely than not, is it really more likely than not that you could take a God who is finally tuned to the universe for humanity to live, who has humanity that he cares enough about to be engaged with, 
and he's not going to communicate? When humanity, the, the, the distinctive characteristic of humans is our ability to communicate. To even the evolutionists, that's what sets us apart. And God, I mean, he's got the power to, obviously. Do we think he just doesn't care enough? If we think that, your God is too small. Because God has enough power to communicate with every person who ever existed. If he can keep track of the stars, he can surely do that. And he certainly has the desire. So absolutely it's fair. Now, having said that, I want to tell you, this is one of the big contrasts between Israel and other ancient cultures that were contemporary with it. We often think, we grew out of the Judeo-Christian heritage. We grew out of Jewish scriptures. Christ was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. James was a Jew. Most of the New Testament was written by Jews, and it was written about Jews. So we come out of a Jewish heritage. We forget, or we don't know, that Judaism is radically different in its Old Testament forms than any other religion walking around at the time. And here's the major difference. For Israel, compared to the others, for Israel, God sought to communicate with people. The whole idea of having scripture is God communicating with people. God sought to verbally use this, the verbal skills to communicate with people. And the other religions, they, people had to work to get God's attention. You'd be a, a Baal worshiper. You've got to work to get God's attention. He's not just, oh, I want to hear from you like a father does his son or daughter. Or her mother does her children. No, no. Look back at a story you're familiar with, likely. In 1 Kings 18, when the prophets of Baal go to fight, uh, uh, or go to have the, the fight off with Ahab, um, prophets of Baal. So Ahab sends to all the people of Israel and gathers the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah comes near to all the people and he says, okay, you got a choice here. Two opinions. You want God or you want Baal. Figure it out and follow him. And he says, I'm going to challenge. I am the only prophet here of Yahweh, but you got 450 prophets of Baal. Bring them on. Let's take two bulls. We'll cut them into pieces and lay them on the wood, but nobody gets to light the wood. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of Yahweh, the God who answers by fire. He's going to be the God. So look what happens. All the people said, that makes sense to me. That's a good idea. God makes a point. Okay. So Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, you first. You get to pick the bull. You get to prepare. You get to, you get, don't say, I, oh, he picked the bull that self-ignites. No, you pick the bull. You do everything. So they take the bull, look at this. They prepare it and they call upon the name of Baal. Baal! From morning until noon. Hey! Hey, Baal! Wake up! You listening? Hey, we need you! 450 of them. And they don't just do that. I mean, bless their heart, Elijah starts mocking him and says, Hey, just, just yell louder. You know, he's probably like um, entertaining himself. Or maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's on a trip. 
You know, he could be asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. So look what this, they cried aloud and they cut themselves, and that's the key, after their custom with swords and lances until the blood's just gushing out. After their custom, that's what they, they got to get his attention. Hey, hey, ah, ah, look, I'm bleeding. Get, hey, hey. They're trying to get his attention. After midday passes, they raved on. But no one answered. And no one paid attention. Elijah sets it up. Makes it a little more challenging. Pours water on everything. Says, Yahweh God, show them who's God. Boom! Fire from heaven. Boom! Devours it. Major difference between the God of Israel... We go back to the PowerPoint, please. The God of Israel between our God is our God seeks to communicate, which is what we would expect from God. And it happened on Mount Carmel. It happened. Uh, uh, it, it happens throughout history. It's God seeking to communicate. So now we go back to the model. We've got God as the sender. God's got to encode His message. He's got to decide what language to put his message in. And he's got to decide the winds of when he wants to give it. We know from Scripture that God chose... Right now we've got about 6,000 languages in the world today. But historically, I don't know how many. I don't know that number. But God made a determination of language and God made a determination of time. So God encodes a message... He's sending a message to you and me, and that message gets delivered through a medium. Now, sometimes the message we read was oral. And to some degree, God still uses an oral message today. But beyond the... I mean, I'm standing up here speaking, but I'm not telling you I've got a thus saith the Lord and every vowel and, and syllable is right. But it's certainly a message that I think is from the Lord. Now, aside from oral, though, there is a special written message that we have. One that has been attested to by prophets. One that has been attested to and, 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 and is put together by apostolic authority and apostolic tradition. One that Jesus Christ himself authenticated. And one that authenticates Jesus. And that's the Bible. So here we are as the receivers of God's message. God has chosen to deliver a message to us. Paul, by the way, in Romans calls the message, if we go over to the PowerPoint for just a moment, in Romans 3, Paul's talking about what the advantage is in being a Jew. He says, what in Romans chapter 3, what advantage does the Jew have? Much. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of, of God. The word oracles, logos, the words. But the logos of God, ton theon, the logos of God, was a very special Greek phrase that meant the oracles. This is the word that God gave. The Bible is no mere collection of musings of humans. It is a deliverance of God. And some people, some of my friends, if we go back to the PowerPoint, some of my friends are amazed that I believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Absolutely I believe it. 
It makes sense to me that a, a, a communicating God who has a humanity that he has made to be communicating, where that is a distinctive feature, if not the distinctive feature of us from everything else, that he wouldn't want to communicate with us, that it's not there for a purpose. Of course it is. So what I've got to do is try and decode it. I've got to try and figure out the language. I've got to try and figure out, okay, well, when he wrote this, I'm not wrote it, but when he had his prophets write it, you know, in that time, what did it mean then? Now, there are some warnings I want to give you as we try to decode what God has said. One of the warnings I want to give you is this. You know, we've broken this model down and used communication theory for discussing what we're doing here, but we've got to remember to keep the sender and the message distinct. Who is the sender? The message that at least we're talking about right now, the written message is what? The Bible. You keep those distinct. What do we worship? God. We don't worship the Bible. The Bible is what we read to try and understand what God has to say. We keep God distinct from the, 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 the Bible. Now, second thing I want to warn you about is we need to recognize the sender. Um, um, okay, it takes one minute. I'm throwing it in there. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You remember the story? Lazarus, come forth. Jesus tells a parable about a rich man in Lazarus. That is the only parable where Jesus names one of the people in the parable. And he chooses to name that person Lazarus. The rich man dies and goes to hell. Lazarus dies and is in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man in hell calls out to, to Abraham, Oh, I see Lazarus up there. Can someone please warn my brothers? Abraham says, what do you mean warn your brothers? Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they wouldn't buy that. They don't believe that. Send someone back from the dead. They'll believe that. And Jesus' response is, no, I send someone back from the dead. But if they're not believing the Bible, they're not going to believe that either. And I want to tell you, those two go together. You don't believe the Bible, you won't believe in a resurrection of Jesus. And you won't accept the message of God. You won't accept it as being sent from God. Those two go together. By the way, Jesus resurrected Lazarus and a bunch of people went and ratted him out to the priest to try and get him killed for it. Didn't mean anything to them either. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Everybody didn't all of a sudden fall down and start worshiping him. Okay, back to the communication model. So we get the message. Now, we talked about the idea that there is interference. Let's talk about what that interference can be. One type of interference is you've had thousands of years of people hand-copying manuscripts of the prophets. Sometimes they make spelling mistakes. Sometimes they drop sentences. Sometimes they add a sentence twice. Scholars do work to put back together the original text and have done an amazing job at it. We know that because of uh, evidence like the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
which show how well scholars had put together the message from transcripts over a thousand years after the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. All of a sudden, in the 1940s, they discover these transcripts and manuscripts that are 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 years older, but they bear witness to the ability that scholars have had to reconstruct the original autograph materials. But that's one kind of interference. There's more interference. There's interference in whether or not we open up the book to read it. There's interference in how well we read. There's interference in what we come to it and what we think as we're reading it. All sorts of things like that. By the way, did you notice a difference in the message that was sent and the message that was received? The way I put it in the PowerPoint? Let me help you. There's a hint. What's the difference? The S's are red. I don't want us to ever think that we absolutely, totally understood fully the message of God. Now, there are parts of it that are real easy to understand. You can be a a, a 10-year-old and understand that God made... I mean, read the Bible. You will get that God made man in His image, made him to be in fellowship with Him, that man sinned, and that sin drove a wedge between man and this perfect almighty God, but that God himself reached out to make a difference, and in a way that is consistent with God's character, paid the penalty or the wages of that sin, so that man, through faith in Jesus, could return into fellowship with God. You can get that. But if you want to get into the slicing and dicing of some of these finer points of the message, it's going to take some study. And don't ever think you figured out all the Bible. Because you didn't. And if you think you did, your God is too small. His message is much too much for that. Now, here's what we've left out of this. Feedback. God has reached out to communicate to us... But we respond in feedback. That turns it from being one-way communication into a dialogue. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. So in Luke, the way Luke sets out the Lord's Prayer, Luke sets it out with Jesus praying, Luke 11, in a certain place. Jesus is responding to God. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, the way John taught his disciples. And Luke puts it into one set of Greek, but we are more familiar with the Greek the way Matthew does it. And so let's look at Matthew's language, because it's a little bit more typical of what we know. First of all, I love the prelude that Matthew gives as well. Jesus says, when you pray, here's some of your lesson. Don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. You're not trying to get God's attention. You're not judged by how many. You don't need 450 people so it's loud enough to get Baal's attention. You're not trying to throw out a bunch of words because he's going to give you your answer if you're just pesty enough to ask every way possible. Don't get me wrong. Jesus prayed all night. And Jesus repeated prayers. And there's a value in that. But it's not that you're trying to get God's attention. They think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. God already knows what you need before you ask Him. This is not, oh God, I need to tell you this because you just don't know it. Our Father. There are six clauses here. Three clauses about God. 
three clauses about man. First, God, our Father. That's relationship. In heaven, that's deity. Relationship, but recognition of who he is. Hallowed be your name. Holy, special, worthy of praise, worthy of merit. And name is not simply Yahweh. Name is who you are, what you've done, your character, your reputation. You are holy. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And that on earth as it is in heaven applies to all of these phrases in the Greek. To him being a father in heaven, to his name being hallowed in heaven. May he be a father on earth as he is in heaven. May he be hallowed on earth as he is in heaven. May his will, kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that's about God. Now we've got to shift for a minute. Okay, we're running out of time. I'm going to talk a little quicker here because we've got three minutes to get through some stuff here. I want to show you this prayer. This was a Hebrew prayer offered at the time, still offered today. Kaddish. It could be spelled with a Q instead of a K. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created. According to his will, may he let his kingdom come and rule in your lifetime. Jesus took the Kaddish that they were familiar with, but he made a major change. It's no longer, hallowed be his great name in the world, his will, let his kingdom, his kingdom rule in your lifetime. Jesus has made it personal. Go back to the PowerPoint, please. I mean, the, it's now, hallowed be your name, not his name. It's now, your kingdom come, not his kingdom come. It's your will be done, not his will be done. And then it goes personal. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm worried about next week. I got some stuff going on next week. I'm really worried about it. Ooh, wait a minute. I was taught to pray, give us this day. And actually the, the Greek there's a little bit fuzzy. It could mean give us tomorrow, but it's either give us this day or give us tomorrow. Our daily bread, daily bread. I don't need to worry about next week. I'm going to pray about each day, the day of and the day before. I'll cover both bases. So God take care of today and take care of tomorrow. And he will. Then tomorrow I can say that same prayer. And he will. He's forcing us in this prayer to focus on daily putting our lives before God and daily communicating with him. The oldest writing we have outside of the New Testament of the church is called the Didache. The Didache is is, uh, uh, the teaching of the apostles is the subtitle of it. It's written somewhere between 50 AD, which would make it before the New Testament closed, and 125 AD. It's very, very early. They taught, the early church taught you to pray this prayer three times a day. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Three times a day. This is a prayer that Jesus, if we go back to the PowerPoint, not only takes the Kaddish 
not only takes the condition, makes it personal, but makes the whole prayer personal because we also ask God to take care of us in our lives even as we recognize him for who he is. Now go back in closing to what Salvador Luria said. Human language is a special faculty through which all of our conscious human activity is filtered. Doesn't it make sense that God would not only speak to us in human language, but God would call us to speak to him in human language with our feedback? Not because he needs to hear it, because that is our role and that's the way we learn. Human language is the faculty through which our activity is... Look, if you don't vocalize, either out loud or in your brain, in words, your petitions and your requests to God, your conversation with God, you're denying yourself that fellowship and that personal time with him. You just are. It only comes through words. That's what science has taught us. So here are the points for home. Luke 16. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I want us to listen to him who speaks his wisdom in the manner he chooses. We'll seek to decode it. We'll seek to understand it. But we need to know the sender is speaking to us. And we need to listen. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, that rightly divides the word of truth. We need to not be happy with just the simple, uh, 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 easy to understand gospel message. It's, it's profound. We never lose track of it. It's on which we stand and live our lives. And without it, life would be pointless. But let's grow past that. I'm excited about our New Testament study this fall. Let's dig into God's word together. Last point for home. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's not the reason we're praying. It's not because he's a magic genie and if we say it right, he'll grant us three or more wishes. We are praying because we need to talk to God. That's what aligns us within his will. That's how we better understand what he's doing. That's how we pray his will because it's his will we want to pray, not our magic wishes. We want to be doing his work. We pray for his work to be done and he will always honor that prayer. So would you pray with me, please, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That tagline, we'll, we'll talk about that in the New Testament study in the fall. God bless you guys.